The first one is what we call as uh, feature shocks. So these are products that are you know, simply over-engineered, a lot of features. Um, and if you hear things like, let's just add this in, um, our customers don't know what they want, uh, let's just pack the product, most often you're building a feature shock. Mm -hmm. And people usually say we are building a one-size-fits-all first, often a one-size-fits-none, <laughs> in the sense that either it's too much for someone or too little for another. You're solving for an average customer who actually does not exist. Mm -hmm. right? So the key is to think about this a bit more in a segmented fashion, uh, and we can come to that when we talk about some of the frameworks and principles that we showcase in the book. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Insights Podcast Series from Axel. I'm your host, Anand Daniel. Today, we have with us Madhavan Ramanujam, partner at Simon Kutcher & Partners based in San Francisco, a firm that specializes in helping companies with their pricing strategies for over 30 years. Madhavan has worked with companies at all stages, startups to Fortune 500s. He has led more than 125 monetizing projects for internet, software, and technology clients, helping bring numerous new products to market. His popular book on monetizing innovation, How Smart Companies Design the Product Around the Price, is a book I highly recommend to founders and has some great insights on best practices to follow for maximizing your chances of success to monetize your startup. He's also a regular speaker in leading conferences and forums and, and has extensively spoken on the topic of new product monetization. A lot of insights to gather from him. Let's dive right in. I'm excited to welcome Madhavan Ramanujam, a partner at Simon Kutcher and Partners. He's written a fantastic book called Monetizing Innovation, which I'm a big fan of. I was referred to it by Harsha Majithi, founder of Swiggy. He said one of the best books he read on pricing. So I'm excited to welcome Madhavan. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Anand. It's a pleasure to be in the show. Awesome. Thank you. So I want to start out with the introduction to your firm, Simon Kutcher, and mm -hmm. the work that you do in pricing. Mm -hmm. So Simon Kutcher and Partners, we are regarded as the world's largest pricing strategy consulting firm. So we have done over 15,000 projects in this topic area. We've been founded 34 years ago. We are extremely global. We have 40 offices worldwide, 1,300 associates, 110 partners, and we operate in 60 countries. And essentially what we help our clients with is to improve everything on their top line. So anything on the revenue profit, uh, you know, our growth side, those are the topics that we totally deal with. Uh, we left cost to the others, so we are a bit in the sunny side of consulting, <laughs> shall I say. So, yeah. You're, you're in the making money side. Making so money, yeah. <laughs> it's a sunny side. I like it that way. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to come back to uh, your firm as well as the work that you do. Mm -hmm. But before that, maybe a quick introduction about yourself, uh, mm -hmm. like a short background. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, I'm, uh, uh, you know, I've, I've been uh, working with uh, Simon Kutcher for the past 11 years, last eight um, as a partner and also last four in the board of our company. Prior to that, I was in school at Stanford GSB and also the you know entrepreneur uh, entrepreneurship group and did a, my engineering degree as well. 
um, and worked for six years prior to that. In India, I went to the Indian Institute of Technology in Chennai. Um, that's a bit of my background. Okay. You follow cricket, CSK? Y- yes, uh, absolutely. I mean, that's something, I mean, you can't take out of someone, right? So I do follow. <laughs> follow uh, I just had to get that in. Follow cricket all the time. So. Awesome. So good, uh, good to uh, have you here. And mm-hmm. then, so I want to start out with uh, my first question is, when you talk about monetization, when should someone start thinking about monetization? Because the founders who are listening, some of them might be at idea stage, some at seed, some mm-hmm. at series A and some beyond. So when should mm-hmm. someone start thinking about it? Yeah, monetization, I think there is a, um, there, there are two important lessons. One is to think early and two, to think often. Uh, what I mean by that is more, more often than not, companies you know, obsess over building products, you know, getting the right, let's say, product market fit, that they are really postponing their pricing discussions to the very end or don't have a clear, you know, plan to monetize. So pricing or monetization becomes an afterthought, um, right? I mean, it's, and and it almost comes down to like, oops, we need a price. So let's slap something, put it out in the market and see if it sticks. I mean, it's, um, uh, I'm drinking water here right now. So if, if someone asked me, do you like this in a bottle? Um, you know, at $2, I would say, okay, it makes sense. But if it's at $20, the whole conversation is off. Mm. So unless you actually put pricing as part of your, you know, product market fit validation, often you're hearing what you want to hear. So I think the key lesson for entrepreneurs is not just achieve a product market fit, but achieve a product market pricing fit. Mm. And that happens only when you do this early and often. By early, what I mean is having the early willingness to pay conversation. As an, as an entrepreneur or a, or a company, you actually don't have a choice as to whether you will have a you know, pricing conversation with someone. The only thing that is in your control is when you will have it. Uh, if you have it early, you will, uh, you know, let's say you take a prototype, a wireframe or any concept, you know, put it in front of a customer and says, you know, try to have the same sales and marketing conversations that you would have after you build the product. And if you can't convince someone that the product actually is going to deliver value, chances are it won't. Uh, you know, you won't be able to convince them after you build the product too, mm-hmm. right? So having that sales and marketing and value conversation and essentially asking someone if they are willing to pay for that exchange of value. And if someone is not, then asking the most important question, why? And often you hear so many information that you can use to like tailor your product around customers' needs, value, and their willingness to pay, in short, around the price. This is what we call as the design around the price mechanism for building products. And you need to do this often because at various stages in the company or an idea, you get um, you know, signals for like various levels of accuracy. Um, you know, six months to a year before you're launching your product, it's by far more important to get the order of magnitude, you know, kind of right. And then you hone in to like get to being more, um, you know, precise as your launch day comes. And you are not scratching at that time your head and saying, okay, oops, we need a price. You already have a pricing strategy in place. And does this apply only to one industry or Mm -hmm. one kind of, or across industries? Can you give some examples? Sure. It it, it applies... uh, Across industries, I mean, I would probably give you an example of an industry which is, you know, notoriously difficult to actually innovate sometimes, automotive, for instance, right? So there are, we, we start the book Monetizing Innovation with a tale of two cars, right? I mean, the first car in our tale is uh, Dodge Dart, which, you know, there's a commercial which actually, 
sort of almost, uh, you know, documents their innovation process. It goes something like this, right? You build a car, you perfect it, you're a bit of engineers, you destroy the prototype, build it again, wake up the next day, build some more, build some more, because the notion is that, you know, your customers don't necessarily have a view or an idea on what value is. And as an entrepreneur, you, you kind of take that responsibility of like giving the best to the, you know, to your customers. So you obsess over building something, they slapped a price, launched it to the market. This was one, uh, you know, car in the story. Another one, Porsche Cayenne. Uh, this actually came about when you know Porsche wanted to launch an SUV. At that time, in the 90s, I mean, they were, um, if they were, they were known for cars that used to drive like you know 200 miles per hour. So I mean, at that time, it's uh, it was SUV probably. I mean, didn't. It didn't even sound, I mean, it was not sure. It was it's a, like Ferrari it, launching yeah, an SUV. Exactly, right? But at that time, they they were, it was a bit path-breaking where what they did was interesting. They went and validated with the market whether there was a market for an SUV before they even productized anything. And they, to their pleasant surprise, they actually found that there's a market. Um, but they also found that there's a willingness to pay for it, which was more important. But what happened next was even more fascinating. And the innovation process could not have been, you know, more different than, you know, the Dodge Dart. Every feature that actually went into the car was battle tested with customers, right? So for instance, you know, big cup holders, which probably, you know, go against the grain of most German engineers, right? I mean, aesthetically doesn't look pleasing, but it's value oriented. People needed it, they valued it, and they're willing to pay for it. So it was in the car, in the SUV. And a six-speed, you know, manual transmission for an SUV, people didn't need it. They didn't value it. They were not willing to pay for it out of the car, mm. right? So everything was actually battle tested with uh, customers. They even had like, uh, you know, prototypes that people could drive around, give feedback, you know, but everything was centered around not just giving feedback on a product market fit, but also on a product market pricing fit, like I said earlier, having that willingness to pay conversation early. Um, and the, you know, when you take these two cars, the fate of these two cars couldn't have been, uh, you know, even more dramatically opposite. Just like their innovation processes, right? I mean, in in uh, 2014, um, in, in, in it was I think 2016, uh, Dodge Dart was actually called uh, by market watchers like the you know second biggest innovation flop. Mm. It took a few years and they faded out from the horizon. Um, never successful because they built a car with a plethora of features that no one was seeking at a price point that no one was willing to pay. At the end of the day, it just did not resonate with any particular segment of customers, mm -hmm. right? And if you take like Porsche Cayenne, extremely successful, uh, probably one of the most successful launches in automotive, more than 100,000 units a year, and it accounts for more than 50% of Porsche's profit. So when you look at that as an example of a, you know designing the product around having this customer needs value and willingness to pay conversation in automotive to like something like from my background, I mean, I'm, uh, I work routinely with, um, you know, technology companies and I've probably worked with over 150 companies in the tech space, uh, mostly in software, internet, two-sided marketplaces, platform companies, you know, mobile companies, et cetera, unicorns and others. We've now worked with over um, 30 plus unicorns as Simon Kutcher. And I personally work with a, about close to 20 of them all of these principles stand um, exactly as the Porsche or the Dodge example. So I think um, there's no, I, I would say there's no industry that can't benefit from this kind of thinking. Um, majority uh, of the stories are also relatable in the book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, we also chose a, and built a framework 
that is applicable across industries but certain principles might actually apply more or less for certain industries and we emphasize that also in the book got it so yeah. maybe let's jump and talk about why you wrote the book and maybe and let's start talking about the book yeah why yeah. i wrote the book that's uh, that's an interesting uh, journey so i think it probably traces back a bit to like why i decided to join simon kutcher and partners after my uh, you know uh, uh, time at uh, the gsb at stanford and also the engineering school there um in classic fashion you know having trying to graduate from stanford we had a team of like four people we had an idea uh, we were trying to launch our company um, you know probably like many of your founders that are listening to in this uh, <laughs> podcast trying to launch our own idea and you know we went and pitched this idea to a bunch of vcs and and i was in charge of like the marketing plan so to speak um and and i remember being asked this question saying you know how how do you know that you would monetize on this idea and uh, and i look back and i said okay i pulled up a spreadsheet with all kinds of assumptions and i showed it to him and uh, he, it was very quick for him to like dismiss it and he said you've labeled those correctly those assumptions mm-hmm. how do you truly know and that question kind of haunted me drove me and uh, within a week uh, as has uh, you know um uh, as as fate would have it my uh, managing partner at that time Matt Johnson from Simon Kutcher uh, he gave a call and he said hey we are looking for you know Stanford grads and we are the world's largest pricing strategy consulting firm and and honestly i didn't even know that something like this even existed <laughs> as as most founders and entrepreneurs i thought pricing was more of an art uh, but i discovered the science in the last uh, you know 11 years and working with so many many companies and 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 i think it also traces back a bit to like uh, you know pricing never been necessarily taught as a topic area and uh, as an entrepreneur or founder you don't even have access to like a lot of knowledge around what pricing means and and the majority of the work that i've been doing in silicon valley and san francisco has been working with companies who have probably thrown products up against the wall hoping that it sticks they need a pricing strategy or a commercialization strategy to make it you know uh make it big uh revenue growth profit topics um and they've thought about pricing too late sometimes and we try to undo it so i decided to write this book along with our uh, ceo george taka uh, and sort of um you know come up with our principles as simon kutcher what we have learned in the last 34 uh, plus years trying to like codify that into a book as to like you know how to really think about pricing and what are the frameworks and you know really give back a bit to like these founders and entrepreneurs uh, and and educate them that it's a bit of a uh, sign more more of a science than an art uh, and i mean we, we honestly we could have written a lot of marketing uh, you know fluffy crappy books but we truly meant to give back a bit to like the community in terms of what we know as uh, and who we are and and i think that's really what drove me to write this book and um you know here we are talking about the podcast today so <laughs> that's great so yeah. maybe we'll jump into the book you talk about why innovations fail so can you talk about the reasons why many innovations fail and maybe you had some numbers around that as well sure um there are a few numbers that i think worthwhile remembering i think when we talk about innovation failures right i mean we um being who we are we launched the world's largest uh, you know pricing study every other year right i mean the last time we did this in in 
in 2014. Um, I mean, we do this every other year, so we even had one recently. But the last time we, do, we did this in 2014, we, we had about 2,000 companies participating, about 40% uh, you know, C-level respondents uh, across 60-plus uh, countries. And we asked people, you know, um, are you in some sort of price compression? You know, or do you feel any kind of price pressure? 80% of the uh, founders actually said, or 80% of the companies actually said they faced some sort of price compression or pressure. Um, and we said, okay, um, are you in some sort of price war? 60% actually said they are in some sort of price war. Mm. And we asked them who started it. 90% said the others started it, <laughs> right? It's very classic. And then we asked them this simple question about, okay, how do you get out of that price compression? And we gave them a long list of things. They could enter whatever they wanted. By far, the number one thing that came out in this kind of uh, you know, study was that they said they would want to monetize, monetize their innovation to get back to the you know, glory days. And that's really the route to like successfully you know, uh, getting out of this kind of price compression innovations. But then when we asked them, you know, to what extent were your innovation successful in the last, you know, three years, as in they met revenue profit targets or simply even worked. Uh, stunningly, 72% of innovations failed to monetize. Mm. This is the first number to keep in mind, 72%. Uh, but it's not just us saying it. I mean, if you look at Harvard Business School, they would say eight in 10 startups fail. At, and I think it's uh, Product Management Association has 67% as a number. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's gotten to a point where people would accept you know, failure as a necessity to succeed. Uh, what we actually often see is it's not about failure or success, but employing the right principles and like maximizing your chances for success is by far more important. You could probably call this a bit of like, you know, fail smart or, or, or try smart is probably how I think about it. But what we were able to see was the big insight when we look back at all our projects was that monetizing innovation failure, which goes back to your question, only happen in four ways. This is actually good news, right? I mean, the 72% might sound like bad news and it's scary, but the good news is it only fails in four ways because if it fails in many more ways, then you would probably be sitting and it's a day job on a day job to find out what's wrong, right? It's only four ways. So let's talk through uh, what those four are, right? The first one is what we call as uh, feature shocks. So these are products that are, you know, simply over-engineered, a lot of features, um, and if you hear things like, let's just add this in, um, our customers don't know what they want, uh, let's just pack the product, most often you're building a feature shock. Mm. And people usually say we are building a one-size-fits-all first, often a one-size-fits-none, <laughs> in the sense that either it's too much for someone or too little for another, you're solving for an average customer who actually does not exist, mm. right? So the key is to think about this a bit more in a segmented fashion, uh, and we can come to that when we talk about some of the frameworks and principles that we showcase in the book, right? A classic example of a feature shock that we write about in the book is um, the Amazon, you know, Fire Phone. And even in a successful company like Amazon, and I have, and I have deep regards for uh, everything that they have done and innovated, if you look at the Fire Phone, it came with a plethora of features, right? And my favorite one was these four uh, cameras, which were in the... Uh, uh, in a phone to track your eyeball moments so that you don't need geeky glasses to get a 3D perspective. Mm. Now, if you really wanted that, you should think about it. Do you need it? Did you value it? Fundamentally, were you willing to pay for it? If the answer is no, which was probably the case with majority of the customers, those things sound like an excess. 
So within six months, the phone that launched at $179 was at $0.99, cents, and they had to write off the entire business on that particular line, right? That's building a feature shock, packing too much, stuff that people don't need, often happens in an engineering culture where you just keep adding stuff and uh, you know don't peel back and don't have the restraint. The second way that monetizing innovation failures happen is what we call as you know minivation. So these are products that are the right product market fit, but the entrepreneur or the company simply did not have the courage to ask the right price. Mm. And by far, this is one of the most prevalent you know, monetizing innovation failures in the types of companies that I tend to work with, especially with unicorns and tech companies where they probably got the product market fit right, but they simply did not have the courage to either charge the right price or they ended up educating customers that they're you know about a lower price expectation and they degraded their entire value perception. Mm. Right? Either way, it's a failure. Um, if you hear things like, for instance, uh, let's just set the price here because we need to meet our targets. We are trying to grow up in volumes. Maybe you're probably on to building a minivation. Mm-hmm. Um, a classic example of this that I usually think about is, I mean, there's this company which was a you know let's say a classic Silicon Valley company building a chip and. Um, you know, they came up with a second generation of the chip, which which had no parallels in the market. Uh, super uh, amazing renders, you know, all kinds of like, uh, you know, the graphic displays and things like that in like electronics, which is like, you know, the stuff that makes the electronics actually, you know, stand out. And when they, you know, launched the second generation of the chip, they said, okay, you know what? The first generation, we did 65 cents. Let's just, uh, and this innovation was fundamentally different, much better. And there's this thing called Moore's Law in semiconductors where there's an expectation that the price goes down. They said, nah, we have actually built something of value. We need to undo Moore's Law. So then let's just price it to 85 cents. Mm. And they priced it to 85 cents. The product flew off the shelf. And then when they did the postmortem of their own pricing, what they found out was that these consumer electronic companies could literally charge $50 more on consumers such as you and I when we bought those electronics because this chip was actually rendering all of that stuff inside those electronics. And now if you say 85 cents for $50 of value, that ain't fair. Mm. Right? They could have gone easily up to $5. Now that's a classic example of an innovation where they didn't charge the right price um, and they just had the right product market fit. Right. And if it flow if it flies off the shelf, chances are it was your price too low. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. That's uh, the second one. The third one is uh, what we call as hidden gems. These are products that simply go against the grain of your you know, company or your DNA. And you kind of struggle to bring these products to market because it just doesn't simply seem like your, your natural side of doing the business. But often if you don't harness these hidden gems and bring it to the market, Um, you probably miss out on that and there's a monetizing innovation failure, right? The classic example of this is Kodak, which had the IP for digital photographs, um, you know, back in the 70s, but never productized it because they were worried about cannibalizing the existing, you know, print business. Um, And the rest is history. They probably just live in patterns right now Mm -hmm. in some way, shape or form. And they didn't harness this hidden gem, right? And a hidden gem uh, is often found when there's an inflection point. You know, software companies trying to do hardware, hardware companies trying to do software, offline companies trying to go online, online, offline. Any of those kind of inflection points, usually there's a hidden gem waiting to get uncovered. I mean, a popular or a, or a, an example that is a positive example of a hidden gem, just to give a flavor for this for the 
you know, for the listeners, is a company called Auto Trader um, in in the U.S. and also Cars.com. Uh, two companies that are basically both of them are you know two-sided marketplaces where a consumer can go and purchase used car vehicles from dealers, right? So it's a classic uh, two-sided marketplace between consumers and dealers, and these companies sit in between. Now these companies were actually founded by you know the Chicago and the Atlanta Daily newspapers, you know back in the 90s when they understood that internet and the digital is going to be a big wave. And they actually created these companies at marketplaces. Mm. So they were one of the earliest marketplaces and they could understand this hidden gem and harness it. Because before this kind of way, people used to only see the you know, Sunday clippings for like used car vehicles, but they founded these companies. Now, you know, these are several multi-billion dollar companies that are existing on their own right as a, you know, a marketplace app-driven company uh, like any other technology company. Uh, it's an excellent example of uh, you know, harnessing the hidden gem. Mm-hmm. The fourth monetizing innovation failure is, I think, is by far my favorite, is what we call as an undead. Um, so these are products that you simply should not have, you know, launched because in classic science fiction fashion they come back to haunt you, <laughs> <laughs> and they and they come in two flavors. Either they are the wrong answers to the you know right question, or they're an answer to a question no one cares about. Mm. Either way, you probably shouldn't have you know launched this out in the market. Uh, and often these uh, kind of uh, you know products have no um, uh, no product market fit at all, right? I mean, so the classic examples, even from the uh, you know recent Silicon Valley companies that actually went through this, like I don't know if you've heard about a company called Juicero, mm-hmm. where they actually you know manufactured like a um, machine that was supposed to like do this amazing thing that you could do with your bare hands. And at $500, no one is going to do this, right? I mean, that's an undead wrong answer to a question no one was uh, necessarily caring about. Mm -hmm. Um, These are the four ways uh, monetizing innovation failure happens. Mm -hmm. And uh, we we also write about the, uh, you know, two success criteria to get to the fifth, um, you know, category, which is the breakthrough innovation. And we also showcase a nine-step framework to think about monetizing innovation. Got it. So... uh what could you could we talk about more now that we've understood the four kinds of problems in innovation failure, mm-hmm. right? Feature shock, innovation, hidden gems, or the undead, mm-hmm. right? So a startup has identified that. What do they do next? Yeah. So the um, we look back at like what are the twenty eight percent of companies actually doing? If seventy two percent are failures, what's what is the success criteria for these twenty eight? Mm-hmm. And uh, regardless of how we looked it across all kinds of variables. This just boiled down to like two things. One, having that early willingness to pay conversation. Um, and two, having the C-level involvement and building a culture around monetizing innovation. Mm-hmm. Pretty much it came down to just these two. And I'll drill down a bit into each of them. And then we can talk about what uh, founders need to do to like, you know, um, think about pricing for their own products. Mm-hmm. So the first one, the um, having the early willingness to pay talk, I mean, tongue in cheek, we say price before product, right? I mean, price comes before product in the English uh, dictionary for most companies, it stops right there. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what we really mean by price before product is to really think about that early willingness to pay conversation, have those prototypes, put it in front of customers, you know, try to see what they struggle with, 
Ask them, do they need it? What kind of jobs is it solving? Are they willing to pay for it? If not, why? I mean, like, and have pricing as part of that whole product market fit validation. This is the Porsche Cayenne kind of uh, philosophy that we talked about. And having that early is the first one. And the second one, uh, which is the success criteria, is having the C-level involvement. We actually were able to empirically determine that you know, companies that have C-level involvement in monetizing innovation were 35% better in all sorts of KPIs compared to companies that did not, right? I mean, we kind of knew this going in that, I mean, there is some correlation, but we could actually come back with some, you know, statistical proof that these uh, companies were better. But what does a, um, you know, a C-level involvement in monetizing innovation mean? Uh, it doesn't mean, you know, rolling up the sleeves and going back and saying today's price list is set by me, right? I mean, that's really not what, what we mean. It is really about, you know, setting the right culture, asking the right questions in the meeting, knowing when to go for what resources, you know, challenging the teams, using a framework, mental models, to like really think about, uh, you know, uh, monetizing from a strategic standpoint so that it's not left as an afterthought. In every chapter in the book, uh, we actually end the chapter with questions that a CEO should be thinking about or ask his or her teams mm -hmm. uh, so that they can actually think about this and how do you, you know, build a culture around some of this kind of innovations and which leads to the nine-step framework as the toolkit mm -hmm. that founders can actually use um, in their sort of day-to-day -day in their current, uh, uh, you know, uh, innovations to really maximize the chances for monetizing better. Got it. I want to get to the nine-step framework in a minute. Mm -hmm. Before that, so um, I'm sure you, you've heard this before, but people could say Steve Jobs probably didn't have these conversations, right? So Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I've heard this way too many times. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm that, sure that, yeah, if yeah. I ask founders who are sure, pitching sure. me, no problem. Uh, have yeah, you had yeah. the WTP conversation? So, so the yeah. second chapter in the book, um, we actually, uh, um, I actually wanted to name it, You're Not Steve Jobs. <laughs> <laughs> But the editor thought it was too provocative, so we toned it down to why good people get it wrong. Okay. Um, and we actually talk about this whole uh, notion of if you build it and they will come, mm -hmm. rarely works. I mean, if you actually think about any kind of system, it has to work sometime, right? And we love to talk about these kind of exceptions as a society, and then we miss out on all of the 98% of like, you know, situations where we could have made a difference, mm. right? The, in my uh, thinking, and this is uh, my view, Steve Jobs was not just a product genius. He was also a pricing genius. Why do I say this? Because if you look back at what happened with the iPhone and what was the pricing strategy, it's quite classic in the sense that the product is released at a high price. There is an early adopter kind of influence. And then over a period of time, the price comes down for that particular iPhone. There are new iPhones that are released to sustain at a price point. I mean, if you know, if that same strategy continues on to today. I mean, this time they probably didn't raise their prices, one of the rare occasions. But usually every year there's been a you know, phone at a higher price, but there's a phone for also a lower price. So if you actually look behind the scenes what is happening, there is classic segmentation strategy. As in, for, there's a price for a $299, there's a, there's a phone for $299, there's a phone for $399, all the way to like a $1499, there's a phone for every wallet and every purse. Mm -hmm. So this is classic monetization pricing strategy. If they had just built one iPhone, they would have built a feature shock and completely under-monetized. So if you think about the approach of how to bring that product to market, there were a lot of pricing nuggets that 
you know, Steve and team, in my opinion, were at least using, which is also a bit of what we showcase in the book. So no matter how you think about it, um, if you want to be a product and a pricing genius, yeah. then I guess the framework is handy. That's true. And in fact, he had worked on pricing even before, right? If yeah. you look at the unbundling, iTunes, yeah. every, every step of the way, right? So yeah. a lot of genius. And, and I get the same uh, yeah. uh, question the other way around saying Henry Ford and the horses. Yeah. And I was in a Detroit automotive show and someone said, uh, what do you think about that? And I just said, uh, maybe he missed a opportunity to segment by just making one black car. But that was, uh, yeah. I think, too provocative. So I toned <laughs> it down. <laughs> Got it. Great. So let's start, uh, jump into the nine step framework. I know sure. it'll be tough to go through all nine. Yeah. Maybe if you had to boil it down to the top two, three things uh, that... And then for the rest, the sure. audience can go and read the book. Right? Yeah, happy to. Yeah. I think um, the first one is, I mean, the framework starts with, let's say, having the early willingness to pay conversation and goes all the way to like, you know, maintaining your pricing integrity after you launch the product. I would say the critical steps in the framework that founders, especially early stage ones and CEOs uh, and companies need to think about um, are, you know, having that early willingness to pay conversation um, thinking about segmentation and you know building products and also thinking about how to monetize their products, not just how much. And I will break this down into three steps and what they mean. Mm -hmm. So the first one they should think about is having the early willingness to pay talk. Um, and, and we've already talked about this in the podcast in terms of you know how you like going about doing this is necessary because um, like I said before, as an entrepreneur or a company, you don't have a choice as to whether you'll have this conversation. Mm -hmm. But when you have it, it's completely in your control. And we showcase this one example in the book, I think, which will bring it to life to, read, to the readers. There was this um, you know, two-sided uh, marketplace, and they were already monetizing on the sell side. And they wanted to monetize on the buy side. And uh, you know, their team uh, you know, came up with um, a whole bunch of features that they thought they would actually you know, uh, put in that buy-side monetization. And they went to the CEO and they said, this is what we want to build. And the CEO asked the same question the VC asked me, which is like, how do you know you would monetize on this idea? Yeah. Right? <laughs> and uh, the spin dropped silence. Um, then they were forced to get out of the room, go and have some user tests, conversation with customers, wireframes, products, you name it, like, you know, pitching the idea, talking about the features, benefits, etc., and then trying to see if, uh, you know, people would actually be willing to pay for it. And what they found out was their going in assumption was, um, you know, they, they thought that this feature called highlighting connections from Facebook is what we call it in the book, was by far the most important feature for the product because I mean you think about this if, if you're in a if you're in a marketplace and you're buying something from a seller this feature was something like if I'm buying it from a seller then I would also get information that someone in my Facebook circle has also bought this product from the same seller mm. so the thesis was that because of this credible exchange of information I might be willing to pay for it right but when they went and validated this with their you know customers they heard all kinds of reactions you know some of them said what so i can't pour through the hundreds of reviews to like make my own determination this is not fair because i mean part of what i love to do when buying products is to like pour through these reviews and own up to the decision mm -hmm. there was another group which was like you know i don't even want someone in my facebook circle to be wary that i'm buying products in this particular category whatever just doesn't make sense mm -hmm. why should i why shouldn't i maybe you know there's a appeal to like just making this you know exclusive whatever 
And then there was this third group which said, ah, that sounds interesting. Would you pay for it? Hell no. Mm. So they couldn't find a single segment of customers who needed this, who valued it or were willing to pay for it. So that, was, that feature was completely deprioritized. It was the number one feature that the team thought would actually you know, be the key to unlocking monetization. It was an undead feature. Absolutely. If they hadn't gone and had this conversation, that's what they would have done. But having this conversation, they could take all of their ideas and prioritize the you know, seven or ten features that materially mattered, focus their resources on that, and then you know, focus on getting a better UI, UX experience, and then putting a product with confidence in the market, knowing that it's actually going to fly. Yeah. Right? This is having that early willingness to pay conversation. So, in chap- sorry, yeah. Yeah. so before mm-hmm. we go to the next chapter, yeah. in your book, you talk about how to prioritize the features having yeah. this conversation. That's sure. what I thought was explained. Fantastic for yep. founders to go and study mm-hmm. how to prioritize between features, how to figure out which features to drop. Yeah. I think the willingness to pay goes much deeper. Much deeper. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Right. It, it goes down to like literally um, thinking about, uh, you know, price um, as a measure. I mean, when you talk about price, most people think about a dollar figure. Mm-hmm. That's just a price point. Right. When we think about price, we think of it as a measure. Like, you know, a liter is a measure of volume. Price is a measure of value. And when you think about it that way, the value, willingness to pay, all of this are such an interlinked concept that it represents, do people need your product and how badly do they need it? Mm-hmm. Right. So it goes necessarily deeper. We actually talk about um, more than five different ways in chapter four on how to actually have this conversation, right? Because it's one thing to write a book saying, okay, have it. Mm-hmm. But if you don't give the toolkits, then there's no, no meaning to it. So we actually wrote about five different ways, starting with like, you know, just asking the, uh, you know, plain question, um, but in a smart way to just give a, you know, the readers a flavor for this. I mean, if I just go and ask someone, you know, should I charge $20 for this? That's a garbage question. You get garbage back because you, your customers probably don't know, you know, whether your, whether your product should be $20 or not. But the same simple question is, say, okay, this product, this is the, you know, value, this is the feature, this is the exact benefits. And then you say, okay, it's available at, if it was available at $20 per month, what would you do? That's a conversation you can have because now you have attached a price to a you know value kind of conversation. It's yet having the same simple conversation again. Mm-hmm. It's like it comes down to how you frame it, how you ask it from the very basic questions like the one I just talked about uh, to like even more advanced uh, questions where uh, when we do this for our uh, you know customers, we actually put their clients through different situations and see how they react, different buying situations. And then we would change the situation and then see how they would react. Essentially tapping into the mental models and rules that you know consumers or customers or business owners are using to make decisions and unraveling that a bit into the monetization strategy. And we do write about these kind of uh, you know trade-off mechanisms and tools also in that particular chapter. So that's the first step in the framework, highly critical to have it early and often. The second that I would probably say is, uh, um, you know, equally important is the notion of segmentation. Right? When you go and ask, uh, you know, people like, what are you building? Usually they say, oh, we start with a one size fits all. Like I said before, a one size typically fits none in the sense that there is no, um, you know, single market that we have actually seen where customer preferences are homogenous. It is heterogeneous whether you like it to accept or not. But often people try to build product for this average customer that does not exist. Right? I mean, think of the uh, water that we drink. Right? I mean, if you put it in a fountain, it's free. 
put it in a bottle. I mean, at least in the U.S., it's two dollars. You put gas in it; it's two dollars fifty cents. You throw it in a mini bar; it's five dollars. It's the same damn water, right? But it's packaged differently, productized differently, available in different ways. Some people like to carry it around. Some people like the convenience of drinking in the mini bar. Some people are price conscious; will drink it in the fountain. You know, some people like gas in it. So people's preferences are different, and if you don't understand this, you would never be able to package and productize, and you're leaving a lot of money on the table because you didn't unlock the power of segmentation. Mm-hmm. If you don't think segmentation mostly, or chances are you will end up building what we call as a feature shocks, throw everything into a product, and then you know hope for the best, and it just doesn't work because you solve for the averages, and as we all know. that is just solving for like one customer in a continuum of customer preferences the right way to think about this is to like form your segmentation on needs value and willingness to pay this is the only actionable way to come up with a segmentation strategy right many companies actually talk about segmentation they have it but when you dig deeper and ask them like what exactly do you have they base this on persona or demographics mm-hmm. we actually talk about this in the book as to why that is can go horribly wrong i mean um, i use this example often to just motivate the points or at least you know it sticks in in people or you know readers or uh, minds or in, in this case the podcast followers If you think about, you know, an individual who is like 67 year old, living in a castle, incredibly wealthy, has three children, you know, is from the United Kingdom. Most of you thought probably thought about Charles, but that also Prince fits Charles, Aussie. Yeah, yeah it yeah. also fits Aussie Osborne, <laughs> right? So I would argue that Charles and Aussie have dramatically different tastes, need different things, and probably are willing to pay for things dramatically differently. So if you don't understand needs, value, and willingness to pay, and just ended up doing on demographics. you will solve for charles and ozzy as if they are in the same segment just doesn't work right so you have to think about this from a needs value and willingness to pay construct and the key is to unlock customers who need similar things who value it similarly and who are willing to pay similarly and then you can start building products to these segments now if you have built a product and you say how do i position this to different segments you've already lost the battle right the battle is really to like come up with products for different segments and productize to different segments and the key to unlocking that is to think about you know how do you package and bundle these features that we talked about for instance in the prioritization thing how do you package bundle feature different things so that you can actually build towards different segments and we you know we we write about a lot of principles about how to package and bundle but for the for the audience just uh, one thing one framework that i find it typically useful to just keep in mind we call it the leaders fillers and killers framework right if you think of a classic you know product or bundle um often it's like you know it's like the big mac is your leader product i mean that's the leader in the bundle that's what people come you know for if you throw in french fries and coke those are fillers you can throw it into a bundle if you didn't throw it in a bundle probably many people didn't have wouldn't necessarily have the french fries or coke um, but now that is in a bundle there's an incremental excess willingness to pay that i would probably just give for actually getting two more products that are kind of like fillers mm-hmm. Now, if you throw a coffee into that bundle, that's just going to kill it because chances are, uh, no one wants a double dose of caffeine, a coffee, and a coke thrown into a you know bundle with a burger and 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 French fries. It just doesn't make sense, 
right? So that's a killer. But then there are people like me who love coffee with their burgers. So what happens? It is actually stripped out and you know sold standalone because at a at a higher price. Because I actually have a higher willingness to pay for it than maybe you do, and you don't want it. But if you start putting that coffee into the bundle, it depreciates the value of coffee for everyone. And at, at some point, you'll probably end up going to give it away for free. Mm-hmm. And then there is going to be segments who are going to say, I didn't really need coffee in that bundle, right? So it's going to start feeling like an excess or in the worst case, kill the whole bundle altogether, right? So using these kind of principles, productizing to the segments is the second step in the framework that I would urge people to like pay attention to. The third one, which is I think by far one of the most important ones, uh, tongue-in-cheek, we call it, you know, how you charge is, you know, way more important than how much you charge. And this is a ridiculously important lesson in the sense that often when we talk to entrepreneurs and companies, they think about, um, you know, how much should I charge for this? And, and the first question uh, I typically tend to ask them is, how would you charge for it before we discuss the how much? And why is this important? I mean, just to give an example, I mean, from a... Um, from uh, some dramatically different industries just to like, you know, give a flavor for the, for the audience, right? I mean, if you think about uh, tires like Michelin, for instance, they came up with this super, uh, you know, innovative tire, which was supposed to last 20% longer, mm-hmm. right? And tires are probably one of those industries where there's a lot of, uh, you know, price pressure, a lot of competition, as in you walk into a outlet and you're looking at all these tires, they all look the same, you don't know what you're supposed to pay for, right? And if they had gone and asked for 20% more premium, there's no chance they would have gotten it. And these were tires that were uh, you know, made for like truckers to move goods from point A to point B, right? More on the B2B side. So what they actually did is they said, okay, let's change the business model, pricing model, and said from now on, those tires are gonna be charged on a per kilometer or per mile basis. Mm. This was pretty innovative in the industry. No one was doing this. But guess what happened? The tires actually lasted 20% more. They actually got the 20% more, right? But what was more fascinating is the truckers loved this model. Why? Because now they could actually go back to their clients and say, hey, I drove 960 kilometers and here's how much I'm invoicing you for the tires. Mm. Because they could now invoice the tire cost, which was kind of super interesting and fascinating, right? I mean, so if the value chain that you belong in understands your pricing model, derives value from that pricing model, magic happens, right? I think this is how you charge, dramatically important than how much. Um, there's a, probably another example that I can share, uh, which, we've, uh, you know, which, we, which we've discussed because Peter, who's the CEO of uh, Segment, has talked about this at some of our you know, forums. Um, they used to charge based on um, what we call as like a you know number of APIs as their unit of measure for charging, and this was based on um, you know their product actually integrating various data sources before bringing um, you know insights to their customers. What they actually did was they changed their pricing model to what is called as monthly tracked users. Mm. Same kind of like the Michelin example, and the monthly tracked users is a metric which basically tracks how many users are their customers tracking for their end users, which is akin to the value that this product actually sort of, uh, you know, brings to the table. They were able to uh, double their self-serve revenue uh, and triple their leads for, you know, business uh, packages based on just changing some of this kind of, you know, models and having the right products fitting the right markets, right? So I think how you, how you charge often trumps how much you charge. That is uh, 
probably the third big lesson. We also have six others in the book. Um, again, starting with having that early willingness to pay conversation to you know maintaining your pricing integrity after you launch the products. This is great. So for the audience who are interested, I'm encouraging them to go and read more. It's been very helpful uh, discussing all that. Maybe it'd be good for you to summarize the numbers that you talked about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there was a lot of numbers I was throwing around. I think if there's anything you would uh, summarize or like remember from this talk, four numbers. Yeah. 72% of innovations fail. They fail only in four ways. There are two, um, uh, you know, uh, two uh, secrets for like getting to the breakthrough success. And there's a nine step framework to unlocking your monetizing potential. So that's 72, 4, 2, and 9. And uh, for those of you who can't remember 4, just remember 72, because 4 times 2 times 9 happens to be 72. And I honestly didn't make it up that way, as it just happened to be. <laughs> <laughs> On that note, really appreciate you taking the time and wish you more success in your journeys on the pricing side. Thanks, Anand. Awesome. Enjoyed being you here. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Hope you all enjoyed this conversation with Madhavan. He talked about his work at Simon Kutcher, some top highlights from his book, like the four kinds of monetization innovation failures, the nine-step framework for more successful monetization, and various other toolkits that founders can use for monetizing their products today. I hope you all enjoyed the podcast and that you get the opportunity to apply these lessons in your own startup journey. Tune in a fortnight from now for a new episode of the Insights Podcast series. You can find more podcasts from the series at insightspodcast.in and we would really appreciate if you can leave your comments on this podcast so that you can help others discover this podcast series. You can also reach us at Axel underscore India on Twitter. Thank you. Thank you.